So thank you and welcome everyone to the first in this series, a new series from American Botanical Council and Sustainable Herbs Program, Conversations on Ethnobotany. And we're able to offer these webinars for free because of the generous support of ABC donors and members and SHP underwriters. So thank you all very much. And I'm, today I'm incredibly honored to welcome the first speakers in this series, Mike Ballack and Paul Allen Cox, who will be here speaking about their book that's just been launched, Plants, People, and Culture, The Science of Ethnobotany. It's a second edition of a 1996 book. Michael Ballack is Vice President and Director of the Institute of Economic Botany and Senior Phil Ecology Curator at the New York Botanical Garden. He studied the relationship between people, plants, and culture in the Amazon Valley, Central and South America, the Middle East, Asia, and Oceania. So welcome, Michael. And Paul Allen Cox is recognized by Time Magazine as a hero of medicine for his ethnobotanical search for new medicines. He was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize for his conservation efforts with indigenous peoples. And he founded the Island Conservation Organization, sorry, organization Seacology and is director of the Brain Chemistry Labs in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome, Paul. Um, so Mike and Paul, are, as I said, are gonna, going to speak about the science of ethnobotany and especially their new edition of their book. And I've had a chance to just read some of this new book and it's in one of the most engaging and thorough accounts of the use of plants that I've ever read. Um, ABC director Mark Blumenthal says that it's the best introduction to ethnobotany anywhere. What impresses me most about this book is the way they weave together historical facts about everything from the spice trade and in search for nutmeg in the Bunda Islands to the fall of the Anasazi. They weave in rich details about the uses of plants for everything from medicine to boats to body art and basketry. And then they talk about the loss of this knowledge, the loss of cultural and biological diversity, what that means for all of us and why we should care and their efforts and the efforts of others to counter that loss. Um, so I highly encourage everyone to take a look at the book and consider ordering it. And their publishers, publishers generously offered a 20% off coupon code to participants of this webinar. Um, so the coupon code you can see here is SCI20. Um, and we'll show this slide again at the end of the webinar. So Mike and Paul, um, welcome, and I'm incredibly honored to have this time to speak with you. Um, and Mark, I mean, Paul, I wondered if you could begin. Ethnobotany is such an oddly specific field, and I wondered if you could talk some about what it is and what first drew you to the field. You know, ethnobotany is uh, really the uh, study of how indigenous people use plants. And our real goal is to try or at least in some way, understand plants, see the world in the same way indigenous people see them. Um, the cover shows a woman uh, in Vietnam adding a, a red powder to incense sticks. And what's fascinating to me is that by doing this, she transforms them into sacred objects. They're used during the Tet Lunar New Year. What I find equally amazing is that plants seem to transform human cultures. I can't walk into a new village and open my plant press without people gathering around, all seeing these plants, start talking about them. It's almost as if 
plants as a way of uniting us. And uh, it's been a tremendously exciting thing for me. Uh, I'm very grateful to have been able to do this work uh, because I uh, served uh, uh, as a missionary for my church as a young person in some very remote islands. I learned Polynesian languages. And when Richard Evans Schultes at Harvard uh, found out that I could speak Polynesian languages, he, he said, you know, you ought to start doing this. It was really fun. And then I really changed my field from evolutionary ecology to ethnobotany after my mother passed away from cancer. And I realized there might be a way to use indigenous knowledge systems to discover new plants. Well, there's a lot more I could ask about that. But for now, um, Mike, do you want to chime in and talk some about how you became involved and especially about your, what it was like to person, Richard Evan Schultes at Harvard. Um, he, he did his undergraduate and master's and PhD at the university. And in, I think it was 1941, he got a one year leave of absence to go to the Amazon. And it wasn't until 14 years later that a Harvard bureaucrat found that one year leave of absence in his personnel file and said, it's time to come back. And really, Schulte's great strength, <clears throat> excuse me, was field work. Um, you know, he always told us, uh, do your classes at the university and then go do your work and really learn something from the indigenous people that, you know, in the area that you're working in. And he had the greatest respect for everyone, but especially for those people. He recognized how extraordinarily informed they were about the environment that they lived in, how uh, community-based they were. They had, the, you know, that they have wonderful, wonderful um, properties that we really uh, in some ways should emulate in our own society. And he felt very comfortable in the Amazon. Uh, and he did that so for 60 years, but 14 years at a time. 14 years at a time. And how did you first get in, into this field? Um, I had a wonderful undergraduate teacher at the University of Delaware, Richard Lighty, and he sent me overseas. Um, um, uh, first to Israel and then to Costa Rica, where I lived with um, indigenous peoples and lived in the desert, lived in the forest. And mostly I began studying plants. And then I started talking to the people who were hosting me in the villages and they were telling me stories. You know, this work is all about stories. So I started writing down the stories. And when I got to Harvard, and, and was talking to Richard Choles, he said, uh, gosh, that's called ethnobotany and that's what we do here. So I, I just, I, I found it early on. And then can, I mean, whomever wants to go first, but talk some about then the process of doing the work. You know, often there can be either a romanticization of indigenous ways of knowing as the answer to all the problems of the Western world or the degradation of those ways of knowing as not having the scientific rigor. And what has impressed me in your work, both of your work, is how you respect both and weave those together. And so Mike, could you maybe begin talking about what you learned about how indigenous people discover and use the plants? Sure, we, we you know, the scientific method is trial and error. And Paul and I have expanded it to trial, error, and success. 
because if you're a person um, living in a traditional indigenous culture and you find a plant that has a property, maybe you taste this berry and you feel better or it gives you energy, you know, it's not just trial and error, it's trial, error, and success. Of course, if that berry gives you a stomach ache and you vomit it out, that's error, I suppose, and you learn from that. So uh, people use for, uh, uh, these scientific methods that we've adopted in our own society. How about Paul, would you want to reflect on that? Yeah, and, uh, one thing that we tend to do as ethnobotanists is we use a method anthropologists call participant observation. So instead of just sort of sitting back in a lab coat and taking notes on what we observe, we actually get our hands dirty. We have the people teach us and we get involved with what they're doing. Uh, this ends up with lots of giggles from villagers because we always seem to mess up something or other, but it allows us to understand what they're doing. And, and our goal really is to do whatever they're teaching us, whether it's weaving a basket or compounding a herbal compound until we can do it to their satisfaction. So as a result, we think of our indigenous friends as colleagues. We don't use the term informants, which sort of seems to come from a bad prison movie. They're colleagues, we, we respect them. And I have to say it's in a way we're sort of a link between indigenous science that Michael's expressed so beautifully and, and laboratory science. I was thrilled just to see that one of my heroes logged on who's Dr. Gordon Craig, uh, who headed up the National Cancer Institute Natural Products Branch. I remember going down to see, meet with them and saying, you know, I've thought about this. My mother's passed away from cancer. I'd really like to find something to help serious illness. I think maybe I have a 1% chance. Gordon uh, and, and John Butler at, at NIH said, well, actually, Paul, we've been talking about you. We think you may have a 3% chance, 3% of success. And I said 3% the dynamite because if there's 30 other people like me, maybe one of us can together with our indigenous people find a, a, a new way of treating these serious illnesses. And then of course, as Michael said, it's trial, error and success. And we started planning right away how to involve indigenous people in benefits and economic benefits. This was before the Rio treaties. And uh, we were delighted to see this idea that the custodians of traditional uh, ecological knowledge uh, under Article 8J of the Rio treaties uh, have uh, benefit sharing. And we've spent much of our careers, both Michael and I figuring out how to do that, both monetarily and in a conservation sense. But, but, but I guess I wanna say that what's impressed me with indigenous people is how they feel that plants are sacred. They see a religious dimension, a spiritual dimension uh, to the planet and particularly to plants and animals. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Sandra Bannock, who is working on constructing an ocean going canoe in Lao Fiji, uh, found that the shipwrights would pray before they'd cut a tree down and, and apologize to the tree and explain to the tree what's going on. More recently, uh, I've spent a lot of time now in Japan where people will hang prayers on trees. This whole idea, I was in, the, uh, in Sri Lanka where people you know, actually have a piece of the tree they think that Buddha was enlightened under. And, and this is a very enlightening and, and transforming thing to see how deeply indigenous people care about plants and how they respect them. So it's sort of a circle. We respect the indigenous people. Hopefully they're able to help us and, and, and to encourage us and teach us. And together we're united in this tremendous joy 
of understanding plants and their uses. And, and also, um, it's, it's inherent to many cultures that there is a respect for the environment. And when that respect sort of dissipates through acculturation or whatever, you know, there can be a problem. So we've worked very hard to kind of help maintain that. We, we, we have a companion, of course, a couple of companion uh, disciplines, ethnobiology in a broad sense, looks at all indigenous understandings and uses of plants and animals. We've come at this from bot botany. There's linguistics, synthetic chemistry, anthropology. But uh, I have to say it's, it's been a great way to spend my life, to uh, spend a lot of time in the South Pacific, Southeast Asia islands, even up among the uh, reindeer herding people of Lapland. Uh, I, I, I just feel that this link of plants has taught me not only respect, but a deep humility. And that's maybe one of the biggest characteristics I think that successful ethnobotanists have is that we have to be very humble. We're not there to teach anything. We're there to learn. Just like a little puppy, you know, might soil the carpet. You don't kill the puppy, you teach it, you get a, a newspaper out. When we walk into a village for the first time, just inerringly, we're, you know, we're violating the culture. And, and we hope that the people will understand that we're, we want to respect them and that they'll teach us, they'll instruct us. And so you spend a lot of time as an ethnobotanist with villagers giggling because you say something dumb in their language or you, you do something that any three-year-old would understand that you don't. Um, but I think humility, respect, and then purity of heart are things you can't teach in a classroom, but they really help link us to the indigenous people. And I think we point out in the book those traits, humility and respect, patience, flexibility, and above all, a sense of humor, the, you know, the ability to laugh at yourself and laugh with others. I, I think that's really important. And, and I'll also just say that ethnobotany is not only in remote areas. Um, we do a lot of work at the New York Botanical Garden in urban ethnobotany in our neighborhood because we have so many different cultures uh, who live in New York City. And my colleague, Ina Vandebrook, does a lot of work um, uh, with uh, a number of the communities in the city. So when we teach in, in our classes, we can get the students excited about working with their families, working in their neighborhoods, and also working in remote parts of the world. I just might mention that one of my heroes, Professor Michael Heinrich at the London School of Pharmacy has spent a lot of time studying the molecular basis of, of rice water to treat cholera, to treat diarrhea. It's incredible. I mean, imagine somebody of his training walking into Oaxaca, Mexico, and, 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 and having enough humility to say, well, let me look, why do you give your, your children this rice water and discovering this remarkable molecular biology. And, and I think, again, it's that humility and interest and coupled with deep respect and the willing to laugh at yourself that uh, characterizes my colleagues and, and I think Michael as well. And I, I also think uh, curiosity, I see that a lot in your book and in that work and a, an ability to listen and outside of what you already expect and know and to be, to learn, see things differently. Um, yeah, if I can maybe show an example, if it's okay. Uh, I, I, um, this is called a Fakahuia. It's a Maori treasure box. 
that the Maori people of Aotearoa, land of the long cloud in New Zealand, used to put in feathers of chiefs. And, and you think, well, this is a beautiful design. The uh, spiral designs look like a, a sort of a, uh, an unfolding tree fern tendril. But if you look closely, it also looks to be almost like spiral galaxies. And it seems that the people that created this felt that this, that the universe has order and rhyme. But when you look at what they think about human potential, it's stunning because it's inchoate, it's random. I mean, this is an object the Maoris believe is sacred. It's a sacred object that the Maoris use that they believe is possessed of power to help guide us. And so that's the other sort of fun thing is to listen to people very carefully because they're not just there to teach us botany. When we hear about how they use plants to transform themselves, to transform their culture, uh, boy, I, I get, I'm all ears fast. It, it's remarkable. And I love also in the book how you're talking about that this complex web of value, and then you bring in what's happening is that gets reduced to a monetary value and the cultural erosion that is unfolding in many places of the world. And Mike, I wondered if you could talk some about efforts to address that, how knowledge is transmitted in the, some of the communities where you worked. Um, sure. um, I think we both have thoughts on that, but I think one of the underpinnings, the case we make in this book is that uh, identity is really defined by culture. And in particular, cultural memory is essential to maintaining that identity as a people. And when that starts to degrade, um, uh, people lose their, their identity. And that's why people who are, are interested in, in provoking genocide will destroy monuments or burn libraries and, and destroy cultural memory. Um, recent, we, we do a lot of work in Vanuatu. Um, and recently on the island of Tana, one of the people we work with, Jean-Paul Wahit, uh, who is a part of the uh, uh, cultural uh, institution there, he said, let's have a custom school. Let's have a school where we teach children um, our customs and pass them down, whether it's language or mathematics, uh, how, how you play games with shells to improve cognition and memory, uh, whether to, to, to carve a boat, um, to, to weave a net. And we got uh, uh, funds from uh, the Christensen Fund in San Francisco, and they, they, we had funds for about 20 students, young people. And Jean Pascal put the word out on Facebook. Uh, you know, people have iPhones and Facebook. And suddenly 120 young people showed up. And we spent a week learning to build things like a, a traditional cyclone house that can withstand cyclones, um, you know, huge winds, uh, a fishing net, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, the custom school approach to supporting cultural memory, to try and keep things in practice, is one thing we've been very privileged to work with. Can I ask a follow-up on that? So what they had the school for a week, and then what's happened subsequently with that? Well, that, that was interesting. Um, in Vanuatu, decisions are made in the Nakamal, the, the Kava place, uh, the, the, the place for meeting, which is under a banyan tree. 
And then people in the Nakamals all over that part of the island made a decision. And that was that, that for their customs and ceremonies, they wouldn't use imported calico anymore, imported Christmas tree ornaments in their hair and face paint that comes from overseas, that they would, they would harvest plants for face paint. They would harvest plants for their decorations, that they would give up these imported things uh, and they would embrace their own things. And, and um, same thing on the island of Ponte. We, we asked people what skills, what practices are most important. And they came up with a wonderful list, canoe making, instead of importing fiberglass boats. But what are the least important? Well, maybe a, a bailer in this island. They voted that a, a bailer was not as important because everybody had a plastic bottle that they could bail their canoe out with. But agricultural techniques, canoe making, traditional house building, those were the most important things. And, and I love that process because just the awareness of, oh, this is being lost if I make this choice. Often we make choices and we don't realize until it's too late. Paul, I wondered if you could talk about the, the story you tell in the book about the vine and how everything's connected. And as this vine becomes threatened so much, this web of consequences unfolds. Oh, thanks, Anne. Yeah, this was in the Manua group uh, uh, in the easternmost uh, part of the Samoan archipelago. Uh, we traced the only remaining Samoan that we could find that knew how to build these fish traps out of the roots of Freycinetia reineke. This is a, a member of the Pandanaceae. He has these long roots that can sustain uh, immersion in seawater. We asked him if he would show us how he wove. And he said, well, I'm sorry, the, the, the vines are not available anymore. It turned out the pollinator had gone extinct on the island. So we thought about it. We flew over to Savai Island, uh, several hundred miles away, um, uh, where I had the villagers collect the vines. There were plenty there and the pollinators brought them back. And I, and I hate to admit this, but I sort of felt like I was, you know, uh, Dr. Schweitzer here, you know, coming back to save this culture with these vines. I had 22 kilograms, sat down. Now, here's my graduate students as I recall there may have been a journalist with me. The weaver's wife took them out one by one, said, too small, too thin, uh, this one's rotten. And, and, and finally she looked at me and she said, do you, do you have the brain of a three-year-old? And I said, actually, that, that may be generous. I said, uh, I'm trying to understand your criteria. And I'm sorry, I got roots that are not according to that. And I want to learn. And she could see somehow she'd hurt the pride of this Right, professor. She says, "Well, well, here's a root here that maybe can use." So, we got enough roots. He could start weaving another basket. Word spread throughout the island that he was weaving again, and the young people gathered around. And one guy decided he wanted to apprentice and become a weaver. So, here was this little bit of knowledge that was going to vanish because of loss of biodiversity, and it was great to see that sort of continue on. So. I'm, I'm hats off to uh, Michael, and, and that's where we really, I think, have sort of a passionate plea. I know sometimes people think, well, as ethnobotanists, you guys tend to be advocates of uh, indigenous people, and the answer is yes, Gildy is, is accused. We talk about conservation, because for many indigenous people, 
the greatest threat they face is the loss of their plant diversity through logging or, or other uh, corrosive schemes, together with an unwillingness of young people to knuckle down and learn these old ways. Uh, um, an anthropologist said that television is cultural nerve gas. And I don't think Hollywood intends to erode indigenous ways, but we, if we do our job right, rather than enticing people to embrace Western culture, we validate the importance of the indigenous culture. And, uh, uh, and so that's why it's been fun in Psychology, this foundation I set up to work so closely with indigenous people in setting up indigenous controlled reserves. Uh, our most recent effort uh, was in Sri Lanka where this actually reached the national level and the, they became the first country in the world to agree to protect all of their mangroves uh, in return for us providing uh, loans for women to impoverished coastal women to, to establish their own little businesses. So, but I, I think all of us uh, anthropologists, ethnobotanists that work in this field, all of us are alarmed at the a massive loss of indigenous knowledge to the world because these things are remarkable, they're amazing. And uh, I really hope that our efforts will help reduce and staunch that flow of information and, and instead celebrate it and respect it. And Paul, you, you brought up a good point about technology. You know, some people couch technology as a sort of evil thing. Uh, just a more positive example, uh, we work with a linguist, David Harrison, who has set up a, a program called Talking Dictionaries, where People use their iPhones to um, uh, record the pronunciation of the name, take a picture of the plant, put an image of its uh, information about its use, and then it's all put in this app that people can actually hear native speakers um, who might have passed uh, speak their language. And David has done this in a with 120 uh, uh, groups, indigenous groups around the world. So you know, trying to figure out how technology can be helpful um, is, is a good thing as well. We, uh, together with Todd Capson, we uh, published one of the first books in the Goshute language in over 100 years, uh, which was uh, a pictorial representation and a description in Goshute of how they use the plants for medicine. And here was something the elders really loved. So it's fun to get involved in these efforts. I wonder if you could talk some about the well, as an anthropologist, I'm interested in the implementation of these ideas so that it doesn't become the Westerner coming in and saying, oh, you should protect this knowledge because it has a value and, and sort of what you've discovered in the process, kind of like the win-win approach, Paul, you were talking about in how you would do the research itself. Um, you know, it's, it, that, that's so interesting. I think if, again, if we're there understanding the, the, the people we're attempting to speak their language the best we can. Everybody giggles. Uh, I was working with the Monongabown Hill tribes up in Sumatra and they showed me this place they said was the palace, of their former queen. And I said in my best Monongabown, oh, oh, surely uh, your queen had a beautiful palace. And they started laughing. One guy fell on the ground, started hyperventilating of laughter. It turned out I'd actually said in their language, I later discovered, oh, surely your queen had uh, beautiful genitalia. So, you, you know, no matter what we do, we're, we're sort of bumbling. That's where you have to be willing to, to, to accept that. But to capture their knowledge and repeat it back to them, I take a printer and a solar panel, I type up my notes at nighttime, return them to the people in their language, 
them to read and correct. Um, the, the real danger, of course, is that um, we will miss something or we'll misrepresent something. And, and that's, uh, that's very dangerous. I was thinking of uh, Jan uh, Timbrook, one of my heroes down at uh, Santa Barbara Natural History Museum. She's a marvelous ethnobotanist who told me about uh, the Chumash baskets, the, the most amazing baskets. They have the largest collection in Santa Barbara. Um, she was on in New York visiting. There was a display of these. Homo Indians came out to see this and they started singing. And she said, why are you singing? They said, because these baskets are lonely. So it's really important. Although we're Westerners, we have to expand our intake of knowledge so we do not screen out important things that are important to the indigenous people. And monetization tends not to be important. We make sure that they're protected, you know, and, and we've done a lot to, to make, I mean, we made the Financial Times with anti-AIDS director Stratton because of the good work that National Cancer Institute did, did in sharing it with the country and the village and the healers. But in so many cultures, it's respect and, and, and value that we can look, share with others that makes them really feel validated. So, but it's scary business because when you're talking to people and their language is actually vanishing, uh, you feel this urgency to try try get it right. I'm sorry, Michael. And, and what I learned from David Harrison is there's so much environmental information inculcated within language, you know. So the loss of language is just disastrous. And interestingly. Um, uh, it usually takes around two years of visits to a place before uh, people have sort of had meetings and had conversations with us and decided what they would like us to do. You know, and, and we always work um, under the supervision of the traditional leaders. Um, we have their agenda as our agenda. We may come to a place and say, well, we'd like to do this. And they say, we have no interest in this. You know, but what we really, really need is that. And it's like, sure, why not? You know, because people are going to preserve what they value. You know, and, and if, if that's the case, then our work will be more effective. I mean, let me give an example of this, Michael, with kava. I, I notice a kava bowl there behind you. Uh, um, I mean, this, this is something that's been commoditized. It's uh, used throughout the world, really, for, for treatment of mild anxiety. And, and you know, going in Germany and Stuttgart, there's kava bars and that. But to actually sit in a kava ceremony and to hear what the people say is astonishing. Yes, it has great pharmacology. Vincent LeBeau has done a marvelous job looking at the kava lactones and sesquiterpenes. But... This is the stuff they say as they welcome you to the village and give you, do you have a kava cup there, Michael, somewhere you can hold it up? Yeah, sure. yeah I mean, they, 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 they share the kava cup with you, with kava. And, uh, and then they drop a few drops of kava on the ground. They say, this, this is for God. It symbolizes returning to the earth. And they say stuff like this. They say, our mourning is sacred. It's like the mating of sea turtles where they don't move. Our mourning is sacred as the first light is shown on the earth. I mean, you sit and you listen to this stuff and you think, this is incredible, you know? And they actually believe in Samoa 
that during a kava ceremony, time stops. They actually stop the flow of time through the universe and they start the sequence from the beginning of the creation up to this current new moment that they have meeting you and, 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 and recontextualize it. So the plants are amazing, the pharmacology is there, but to see the awe, I, I, so, so they gave me a bunch of kava roots one time. I was with our, our dear friend, uh, Stephen King, who's an amazing ethnobotanist, uh, Jaguar Health in Burlingame. We're walking back with Now Now Tavanaugh, one of our chiefs that works with us, great ethnobotanist in his own right, coming up to the airport and I'm carrying a, a whole bundle of kava roots and a bag of fine mats. And it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. Everybody, they get out of the way. Please, please come up because this is a sacred plant. It wasn't there was anything special about me. They've been carrying one of these things is immediately recorded, uh, accorded great, great significance. So to me, one of the fun things I think in writing our new book was to go a little deeper into how people see this tremendous, and the only words I can come up to translate are sacredness because indigenous people are united in the belief, at least in my experience in Africa, South America, uh, Southeast Asia, Polynesia, uh, that this planet is sacred. And this is why I think that it could be that indigenous people can teach us a better way of dealing with climate change. They can help us learn why we should protect against environmental degradation, why we should protect biodiversity, because they feel those losses so deeply and they take it right in the teeth as the environment goes down. So we actually are proposing something radical, which is let indigenous people <clears throat> run the nature preserves. Let them teach us how to value in a way we never have in our commoditized culture, uh, the, the, the beautiful treasures of this planet. Sorry to go on there, Ann. I think that's a little bit. Yeah, one thing I've, I've learned just to chime in is that from these people and from my travels, and from the wisdom they've shared is that nature does not recognize a quarterly balance sheet, you know? And, and on a small island, let's say, you have nowhere to run. You have nowhere to go if you use up the resources. So island peoples really invented sustainability, environmental resilience, and conservation. They value it. But we also, as Westerners, have to realize that I think it's so important. I have what I call an informed consent script, where I make sure that the people I'm talking to understand what I'm doing, they understand why I'm there, they understand the technology, I give them the video cameras, have them videotape me, even a pencil, I show them, I say, you know, I don't have the memory that you obviously have in this tribe. Could, is it okay if I write notes in my notebook? I make sure every piece of technology I introduce is approved, they understand it, they give informed consent, because it's so important that we show respect to them as we begin this work. And I think the importance, again, is that there's, there, there's, there's a difference between cultural appropriation, which I think both of us are, are, are decry, and cultural respect. And so my hope is that the stories we tell, and that's the why we took this book rather than have it there, there's other books that are better than ours that sort of more surveys of ethnobotanical work we just tell stories in this book because that's how information is communicated in indigenous societies as they tell these stories and we've been lucky enough to spend a lot of our lives sitting around in small villages listening to people tell these stories over the fire and so that's what we try to do in our book 
And, and sometimes storytelling is two ways. Just another example. Um, sitting around a fire, you, you people ask questions. It's not just you asking questions. And one day I saw um, an elderly man writing with his wife as we were talking, and I said, what, and this was about 20 years ago, what, um, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm taking notes on what you say because these, these stories are important and you know, you're not gonna be around forever. And we want this wisdom to be around forever. So yeah, I thought that was sweet. I wonder if you could eat, and it's hard in such a short setting and you're trying to talk about a broad range of topics, but the ways that there are individuals who you've met, whether there's indigenous authors of ethnobotany, um, how, how so it's, when we speak in terms like indigenous people and Westerners, it, a whole range of diversity gets reduced and lost. And I know that's not how you do your work. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about. Let me just chime in first. Um, back in the 1980s, uh, we started putting uh, a giving authorship on our scientific papers to our indigenous teachers and colleagues and our local colleagues who might not necessarily be indigenous, but, um, and we got a lot of flack for that. You know, the, the scientific community was saying, well, these people can't read. It's like, so what? They're smarter than I am. They contributed to the scientific process that led with this, to this paper. And if you don't want to publish it, that's fine with me. So I would, with, you know, I could withdraw it. But, you know, no, playing chicken with a, an editor is a difficult uh, activity. But, but in the end, I've, I've published extensively with the people who gave me the information. I mean, one, one fun thing I have, of course, is we have indigenous colleagues who are ethnobotanists. Yeah. Dr. Now Now Tavanaugh, a very respected chief, is remarkable. We went to Savai Island with Dr. Tavanaugh, and um, he taught the people there how to use GPS devices to map their uh, uh, distribution of Homolanthus newtons, a plant from which an anti-AIDS drug Canada is derived. Uh, in Honolulu, together with Diane Ragoni and Dr. Tavanaugh, uh, we had to give a talk at a, a very large group, about 500 people. And, and we said, well, look, underneath your seat is a leaf. Would you hold it up? There were breadfruit leaves. There were 500 different types of breadfruit leaves there. I mean, many varieties, many different stages all of which the indigenous people understand and recognize. So I, I think if Michael and I had any sort of uh, announcement or, or way we could impact science, it would be that these indigenous people are scientists. They have what Michael again calls trial error success. They've capitalized on their successes. And this is not just in the field of medicinal herbs. This is in cordage, in ocean going canoes, uh, in plants that they believe are gateways to the other world. And uh, I think all of us in academia particularly could uh, all take a big dose of humility and sit and listen to these people. Uh, in Savai Island, we found the man who knew the very most about breadfruit uh, was a guy that had a rope around his lava lava instead of a belt. Um, when we interviewed the Western uh, managers of, of biodiversity protection, the government, they knew one-tenth of what this guy knew. So. This is a very interesting situation where many times the people who are the most expert at biodiversity, the names, cataloging it, and their uses tend to be people that have not had access to Western education, which I think, Michael, sort of 
validates my sense we had when we were both graduate students. I think in some ways, uh, school makes you dumber. <laughs> well, we, we did a survey on one of the Micronesian islands about canoe making knowledge. And it turned out there was an inverse correlation. The more education you had, and if you had a big government job, you knew nothing about traditional uh, knowledge, you know, or less than people who were farmers and, and fishermen, and they worked with it every day. So it, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. And a lot of what we do, by the way, is generalist knowledge. That's knowledge shared by the community. Uh, we don't necessarily, we absolutely don't catalog family secrets. That's the responsibility of the family. And I think it's important because when, when people see outsiders coming in and saying, well, the generalist information is important, then maybe we should start um, preserving our specialized family information that our family makes a living from, you know? And uh, we had a colleague, a professor, uh, that was at the Botanical Museum when, when we were there at Harvard, uh, Johannes Wilbur. And he was an anthropologist at UCLA for many years. He started working with the Warao in the 1940s and he started learning their dances. And he cataloged their dances. And the people said to him, as he tells the story, everybody knows about these dances. Why are you cataloging them? And then in the 1970s, when he told the story and we, Paul and I were in Cambridge, he said, you know, and I got contacted by the grandchildren and asked to come back and teach the tribe their traditional dances because no one knew them. So I think there's, there's such beauty in this. And what we've, we've tried to put into this book is, you know, the world is so complicated and we, we've really tried to offer examples of sort of food for the soul or, you know, positive, uh, positive things about the world that we can all take pride in as humanity. Uh, well, that's the diversity. That's what's the diversity of how people interact with the environment all around the world and the, the incredible value of that is one thing I took. Um, in a non-hierarchical way, and often the economic system makes it hierarchical. Um, I wanted to open to a few questions, and, and then I have a few others that I want to ask you, but one, um, someone has asked, with COVID and the rapid loss of so many elders because of it, I'm wondering if there are any immediate urgent efforts to, con to collect knowledge being lost. I wonder if either of you... Um, you know, part of the issue here, of course, is that it's very important that we ourselves are not transmitting any illnesses or diseases to the indigenous people. And this gets particularly serious in parts of the Amazon, but here in, in, in the Colorado Plateau, the Dine, the Navajo elders are, are perishing at a very accelerated rate. And this deeply concerns me. And my, my hope is that we can all get behind, uh, just as citizens, efforts to provide clean water and, and wells to, 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 to the Navajo people. Um, I, I think in some regards, it's interesting because we have to meet the dictates of academic science and do the sort of laboratory science to a high standard. Uh, but it's also important that our ultimate judges in a way are the indigenous people. And it was fun uh, in Savai'i, uh, I had a, 
a guy uh, in the United States went after me in the local paper. Hey, these you know ethnobotanists, they're exploiters and etc. Sixty-five chiefs wrote an open letter to the national paper saying, "No, you don't understand this guy. He's here to help us. He's here to document. We welcome him." So the important thing is that what we write and what we do and what we say meets indigenous standards of, of quality and respect. And if the indigenous people are happy with what I'm doing or if they're happy with what Michael's doing, uh, then, then I, I think we've succeeded. And that's where I, I really think what Michael's doing with this custom school in Vanuatu has been fabulous. And I think um, one of the things that we've done effectively is train young people to be sensitive about the importance of traditional knowledge. And while we might be in our homes somewhere else, um, the transfer of knowledge is going on all around the world because elders are speaking to younger people. So I, I think that's a positive. You know, I, I was at Boston Science Museum, gave a talk. The young man came up afterwards, oh, I'd like to be an ethnobotanist. And they all had name tags. I said, gee, your name looks to be Cambodian. He said, no, actually it's Hmong. And I said, well, do you speak any Hmong? He said, no, I understand it. I said, how do you understand it? He said, well, when my grandmother rubs herbs on me, she doesn't speak English, so she speaks to me in Hmong. And I said, you know how many articles have been published on Hmong ethnobotany? I said, you don't come study with me. Go study with your grandmother. Get a tape recorder, get a notebook, write down everything your grandmother tells you. That would be absolutely important to protect. And, and that's, that's the thrill, I think, maybe in a way that at this point in time, Michael and I entered in an era when it was sort of Westerners learning about indigenous ways, led by Professor Schultes, who had such profound respect for the people. Uh, my hope is that in the future, if the, if the knowledge persists, that this will be a largely indigenous enterprise. And I see aspects of that happening in Thailand, uh, in Mexico, uh, 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 and, and, and in the People's Republic of China. All where, around the world. All around the world where indigenous people are seeing that ethnobotany really is giving dignity to their cultural heritage and is something important to preserve. And so uh, all those countries I mentioned, China, Mexico, Thailand, have decided to integrate their traditional medicine into their current medicinal practices. So in Thailand, for 50 baht, you can go down and purchase something that's made from Ipamoya Pez Capri, the beach morning glory. That's a very effective uh, anti-inflammatory drug. It's a lot cheaper than buying a Western anti-inflammatory uh, and, and all the funds are retained within the country. And the work was done by indigenous people together with my colleagues in Uppsala, Sweden. So. Uh, we're pretty excited to see uh, other countries take this as part of their national heritage. And, and uh, Paul and I were talking the other day, one of the reasons we wrote this book uh, 23 years later after the first edition is because hundreds of ethnobotanists, especially younger people, have come on uh, to the scene and written remarkable papers that have just expanded our concept of what ethnobotany is over what it used to be. And what we've tried to do in the book, in the suggested readings, and certainly in the narratives, is cite a lot of those individuals. Uh, it really, it's so heartening because when we first graduated, you know, you went out to look for a job and some, you said, what do you do? And you'd have to sort of say, I'm an ethnobotanist, because there were only a few traditions, you know, and no one really, had respect for it. I, I, mean, I don't mean that in the literal sense, but today it's so, it's such an exciting time because 
of, of what this diverse group of young people are doing around the world. And it just, it, I know it, it heartens both of us to see that. And we tried to honor and celebrate that. And There's a question that maybe follows on that by Todd Anderson. Um, says, great speakers and topics. He asks, how are you ensuring indigenous people have access and representation in academia? Yeah, uh, uh, can I respond to that for a moment? Yes. Um, the Society for Economic Botany, where uh, uh, one of the societies uh, that focuses on ethnobotany, uh, we're having a lot of discussions about that very question. How do you get more uh, uh, underrepresented people into this field? And it's, uh, it's not an easy answer. It's mentoring and training and uh, uh, making opportunities for people. Uh, creating uh, classes around the world that, that people can take and then they become um, uh, leaders in their field but it's 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 there's work to be done it's it's not fixed and let me say again I think I look towards the great work that's been done in Mexico and India in China in establishing positions you know I, I, I'm an adjunct at Shishwambana Botanical Gardens with the Chinese National came of sciences. The other thing we're doing in psychology, the uh, foundation I co-founded in Berkeley, is each year we select an indigenous person who's shown heroic service in protecting their culture and their uh, environment. Uh, we bring them to San Francisco. Um, they get a $10,000 prize. We have a film crew flood their local country with information about them. We had a, a gentleman from New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, never been out in the highlands before, came and we were walking through Golden Gate Park. I said, well, what do you think, you know? And he said, uh, your forest looks pretty trashed to me. He says, ours is far better. <laughs> so it's great working with these people. And I think more recognition is needed for indigenous people. And I'm pleased in psychology every year, a new indigenous hero is recognized from around the world. Related to that question, I also think was, are there ways to, and this is bigger conversation than in five minutes, but to support it's not just learning from the knowledge, but it's also providing economic opportunities, again, because of that imbalance of economics. And I don't know if in a minute or two, you all want to try and address that or. Well, I'll just give an example of a project that Rosita Arvigo and I did in Belize um, a number of years ago uh, in the 1980s. Uh, the traditional healers that we were working with said, well, you can work with us, but we want you to write a booklet. We want you to write a little manual that we can then use with our children. So Rosita and I mortgaged our houses to take out loans to self-publish the book. And um, the wonderful people at Lotus Press assisted us. And we devoted 100% of the royalties to that group of healers that worked on the project. And twice a year, um, a small amount of funds went to each healer so, uh, so that they could achieve their dreams. One, one woman uh, who's a midwife, every time in her home she delivered a baby, um, she had to sleep on the floor and she decided she would like to have an extra bedroom uh, and, a, and an in-suite toilet. Uh, another group of healers decided that they would buy sewing machines for uh, some of the villagers so that they could begin to make uh, clothing that they could sell. So that little tiny book has generated um, really over 30,000 US in royalties. We paid back our second mortgages long ago. 
And, you know, I said to Rosita, we can sleep at night, you know, because we know that we've um, um, sort of mortgaged the roof over our heads so that we could ensure that other people had that same luxury of having a roof over their head. So just one small example, we don't really talk about it much, but there's a lot that individuals can do to make, have benefits go back to uh, local communities. And in closing, I wondered if each of you could say, you've devoted so much energy and work, your life work to those individual steps that do make such a difference. Can you just talk about what's at stake for you? Why is it so important to protect these plants and support the communities that whose lives are interwoven with those plants? I think I felt such a richness in understanding the human condition from being with indigenous people. And as you said, I think so well, Anne, I mean, they're either sort of mythologized or they're denigrated. No, they're people just like us. I mean, we did a project in the Tafua village where we, to thank the village, we gave each home a solar panel so they could have a little light at nighttime for their kids. And, and, and I was criticized. They said, well, you know, this changes it now because now they have light. You're changing the culture. My job's not to protect indigenous people from modernity. They understand this. Why shouldn't, and I said, you know, it's not a zoo. You don't go there to look at these. They're like me and you. They want their child to have a light so they can read at nighttime. Um, our, our colleague, Stephen King, cut a, 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 an airstrip in a remote part of Ecuador. So elders could be air evacuated to a hospital if they needed it. I mean, we, we, we need to intervene in compassionate ways, but I really think the greatest thing for me of the study of ethnobotany is it really has enlarged my heart. It's allowed me to understand different ways of seeing and being and have great respect for, for, for what I've learned. Well, uh, one of my uh, early uh, bosses at the New York Botanical Garden called it the world's work. Um, that you're really working on, on behalf of the world, not yourself. And I think, not to be critical of our society, but there's not enough of that today. And this really has, has this 40 some year period has allowed me to um, recognize that and to feel good about contributing to something much greater than myself. And you, know, you walk into a forest and you see a tree that's been there 150 years and you realize how insignificant you are you know and and it just it just gives you a different way of looking at the world at your life at the people around you i so admire the the sense of community that people have uh it's it's extraordinary and as i always joke with paul i can't believe we've been doing this for so long and we get paid for it you know I would do it either way. Well, as a young professor, I always felt that subsistence foraging was a viable alternative to gaining tenure. So we do have a few tricks up our sleeves. Well, this has been wonderful. And there's so many comments. I can't read them closely in the chat, but so many people who are being very appreciative. And thank you so much for your time and sharing just a teeny bit of the wisdom from your many years of experience. And if Sahar, you can share the screen again with the discount code for the book. Um, thank you to ABC for having us. And yes, you know, uh, it's very important to support the work of ABC. And as a longtime board of trustee member, I've recognized that. And 
this is just a wonderful opportunity. So thank you, Anne, and to the staff of AVC for, for hosting what we think is a spectacular launch of our book. Well, thank and you, Mike. Thank you, Anne.